People's School. The class tonight is on the broad democratic struggles of the 1930s. We're reading a piece from William Z. Foster's History of the Communist Party of the United States, Chapter 22. The section title is The Seventh Comintern Congress and the Roosevelt Coalition. The great mass struggles of workers, unemployed, farmers, Negroes, youth, women, and intellectuals in the early New Deal years in the United States were directly related to the developing struggle against world fascism. Only in this sense can they be fully understood. The fight against fascism was clarified and organized on an international scale at the 7th Congress of the Communist International, held in Moscow from July 25th to August 21st, 1935. At this historic Congress, in which a strong delegation from the CPUSA participated, Georgi Dimitrov, head of the Comintern and hero of the Reichstag fire trial, swept aside the current liberal social democratic nonsense to the effect that fascism is a revolt of the middle class, and exposed it in its full nakedness as the open terrorist dictatorship of the most reactionary, most chauvinistic, and most imperialist elements of finance capital. Fascism, said he, is a most ferocious attack by capital on the toiling masses. Fascism is unbridled chauvinism and annexationist war. Fascism is rabid reaction and counter-revolution. Fascism is the most vicious enemy of the working class and of all toilers. Dimitrov proposed, and this became the political line of the Congress, that to fight fascism, a great anti-fascist people's front of workers, farmers, intellectuals, and all other toiling democratic sections of the population must be built up. The purpose of this broad united front, said Dimitrov, is that in countries of bourgeois democracy, we want to bar the road to reaction and the offensive of capital and fascism, prevent the abrogation of bourgeois democratic liberties, forestall fascism's terrorist vengeance upon the proletariat, the revolutionary section of the peasantry, and the intellectuals, save the young generation from physical and spiritual degeneracy, we are ready to do all this because in the fascist countries we want to prepare and hasten the overthrow of the fascist dictatorship. We are ready to do all of this because we want to save the world from fascist barbarity and the horrors of imperialist war. Speaking of the United States, Dimitrov pointed out that millions of people have been brought into motion by the crisis. He signalized the menacing fascist danger in this country and warned of its insidious approach. It is a peculiarity of the development of American fascism that at the present time, it appears principally in the guise of an opposition to fascism, which it accuses of being an un-American tendency imported from abroad. He indicated the need for a people's front in the United States and stated that a workers' and farmers' party might serve as such a suitable form. Such a party would be a specific form of the mass people's front in America. The reason why we chose this tonight is obvious. With the election and the aftermath of what happened with the people who are around Trump, not just Trump, but the people around him, Proud Boys or whatever they call themselves, and all these other forces that are galvanizing around that section of the leadership in a bourgeois party, something has changed in this country. 
those forces are not going to go away. They're here to stay. They claim they're going to run again. So this is something that's apropos. Where do we go from here? And that's why we're reading this from a book called The History of the Communist Party in the United States by William C. Forster. It's around the period from the common turn, 1935, where the line of the party changed drastically, and people should know that. Any questions on what was just read? I would like to ask about the peculiarity of the development of American fascism. Let me give you the quote from a person in American history named Johnson. Last name was Johnson. He said, when fascism comes to this country, it will come draped in the American flag. That's what he said. Very simple. It will come draped in the American flag. He said that in the 1930s. There was something going on in this country in the South in the 1930s. Huey Long. It happened at the same period. And if you notice, today, and even in World War II, what did they call themselves? The right wing. They call themselves America First. Trump's head, make America great again. They draped themselves in the American flag in our country. They don't come with uniforms like they did in Germany or Italy. They come differently in this country. They always claim to defend the middle class. That's their first thing. And they consider people that work for a living, they throw them in the middle class. So they come off as populists. Someone with billions of dollars, like a Trump, will come off that he's a defender of the working man. The whole thing is a sad, sick joke. It also is the most reactionary element in a society. It's the most chauvinistic. Think about those who talk about whites should be at the top of the ladder, that women should find their place in society subservient to men, that immigrants are not even considered human beings, African Americans are at the bottom of the heap. This is all part of how it will come to our country. Also in the analysis here that's being factored in, it wasn't included in the reading for tonight, but Foster also went into the fascist ties of the Roosevelt administration. One of the things that was going on at the time was that the historical context is Mussolini in Italy and Hitler in Germany. And one of the things that the bourgeoisie were preoccupied given the crisis was how to best mitigate the crisis with what was called organized or planned capitalism. And these ideas were stemming from the state organization structure that was being put forward by Hitler and Mussolini. And part of Roosevelt's administration, there were people who were open admirers of Mussolini. And so you had this dynamic where Roosevelt was against fascism, ostensibly, but within his administration were open fascists. It seems like there's a lot of that that is still unspoken, even in the Trump crowd. How long do you think we have until that all becomes explicit? Well, it happened already with the Supreme Court. They stacked it with people who were opposed to the right of women to bear children. If a woman doesn't want to bear a child, 
and she's impregnated, she has to bear that child. That's an attack against women's right to run their own lives. It's happening already. But remember, there's a counterforce. Marx said it best. There's a thesis, there's an antithesis, and what comes out of that is a synthesis, something new, something different. So that is always going to be going in motion. As their forces on the right organizing their opposite forces, dialectically operating from the other viewpoint. My understanding of our involvement in World War II was less our opposition to fascism and more of securing our allies and our rights to plundering the rest of Europe. And I also understand that many of the businesses in America during the period were heavily invested already in German industry, things like that. Do you know if any of our current industries are doing similar things, not necessarily just imperialism, but investing in, like, Orban's Hungary? Remember, the United States was not the center of the world in 1930s. Economically, England was the center of the world capitalist system, the stock market, which is the first indication of any capitalist society. The stock market was centered at that time in England. And the stock market in the United States and France and other countries was not in the same position they are now. So the stock market and the world economic system centered around England. The United States was not the center. So we were able to have agreements with German industry, et cetera, et cetera. Curious if there's any similarity to where we are currently exploiting these countries that eventually turned fascist? It's not the same situation. The closest we can have is that we funded governments in Latin America. They were dictatorships of a minority of capitalist families, usually landed people. And we did that during the 40s, during the 50s, during the 60s, and that's what caused the problem with Cuba. What caused the problem with Cuba is in 1959, there was a revolution, which at the time was not an OT, a socialist revolution. It was a revolution of national liberation. And quickly it turned into something else because within three or four months, the Castro government nationalized United Fruit and places that purified the oil and the gas and did the whole thing with the nationalized fruit industry pineapple, sugar, that's what caused the embargo. People don't realize that. The United States called an embargo right after that, not before it. Near the end of the reading, you pointed out that one of the things Dimitrov said, which is that the peculiarity of the development of American fascism is that it presents itself as an opposition. What groups did he consider to be a part of that? And what are the like, further peculiarities of it that might be still manifesting today. What he's mainly referring to here is within the Roosevelt administration that there were people who were open and admitted fascist sympathizers. At the time, the historical context was the general crisis of the Great Depression. And one of the things that came out of that was the idea of planned or organized capitalism and the state remedies that were put forward by Mussolini and Hitler to organize society 
against the general crisis. And so people within the Roosevelt administration would admire Mussolini, especially the people involved in the creation of labor laws. And it was under the Roosevelt administration that the concept and the thing that company unions, which had plagued the labor movement in previous years, became nationalized. It was a way for the state to actually get a control on the development and the actual capabilities of the labor movement, which was a main tenet of fascism. And so these people who would say this were organized under the guise of an anti-fascist people's front. They were anti-fascist in words only at that point, but the people that were in the Roosevelt administration were clearly fascists. But it was through the actual labor movement and the pressure and the guidance of the Communist Party of the United States as well as the Comintern and actually guiding and leading the movement against fascism. As early as 1933, so pretty shortly after this, the Silver Legion of America, their best American fascist organization led by William Dudley, they were an organization until 1941, so they're very openly fascist groups in America. Roosevelt comes in. So the election was in 32. Let's look at the whole picture. The stock market crashes in 29. President is Hoover, basically a do-nothing president with the economic crisis. His belief was that government should do nothing, laissez-faire capitalist, if you will. That's the picture. What's going on in the world? Well, in 22, who took over Italy? The black shirts, Mussolini, the fascist. Also, what happened in 22? The attempt by Hitler to take power. And what happened? It failed. So he went to prison. And in prison, he wrote Mein Kampf, My Struggle. All the time he was in prison, he was very similar to, like, all these type of leaders. He was able to be in contact with his forces outside. So this is the picture. So now Roosevelt comes in, in 32. When he first came in, he was emulating, as one of the comrades said, what was going on in other countries, especially Germany and Italy. He was emulating economically and also physically. What's the first thing he does? He sets up something called the CCC, Civilian Conservation Corps. What was the CCC? It took young people off the streets in the cities and put them in the country. And in the country, the thesis goes like this. You have fresh air, they grow their own food, and they got them to work in building up things in Tennessee and the parts of the country that needed to be fixed. They put footbridges in, in the national parks, and all kinds of work. Well, that may sound innocent, but at the same token, let's go across the ocean. What happened in Germany? How did the Hitler people got started? They got started in something called a natural movement where they went to nature. And Hitler did this with the young German people. They wore their overalls and the typical German costumes, the young men, and they went into the countryside and built up the countryside. Very similar. So we as communists saw the CCC as an attempt to do with the young people what Hitler did. You have to look at the period of the time that we're in. Also, something called the NRA, 
National Recovery Act. This was in the beginning of the Roosevelt administration. And if you look at the symbol of the NRA, you can see it in all movies. Like there's a series on TV called The Waltons, if you've ever seen it, in Appalachia, showing in the local mercantile store, you see pictures of the symbol of the NRA. It was the exact same symbol as the eagle in Germany. Only in Germany, it was holding a swastika. And in the United States, it was holding something that had to do with the NRA. But it was the same exact replica. So we began to see similarities. The party had their own candidate, William Z. Forster, in 1932. We did not support Roosevelt in the beginning. But what was happening to Roosevelt? Number one, his wife was very influential. And she was a different mind than he was. Remember, Eleanor was the speaker at the YCL Congress later on, but it wasn't called YCL. It was called AYD, American Youth for Democracy. Imagine the First Lady speaking at a conference of young communists. Also, what was going on, in the beginning of Roosevelt's administration, they tried to overthrow Roosevelt, the reactionary section of the Wall Street big business. And they got military people involved with them, one of them was that famous general who wrote, I worked for capitalism, it's a racket, Smedley Butler. And he exposed them to the New York Times at the time in the newspaper. So they had really mud on their face. They tried to overthrow Roosevelt because they felt he was a traitor to their class. As time went on, Roosevelt was pushed further and further to the left. So it got to the point that he employed people in the State Department this was at the time when we were getting close to the Soviet Union. Remember, in 1933, we did not recognize the Soviet Union as a state. We still recognized the Kerensky government in Russia, even though they didn't exist anymore. But in 1933, Roosevelt was the first president to recognize the Soviet government. Look at the whole picture, comrades. Everything was moving on the right and on the left. With regard to Eleanor Roosevelt, Speaking to the YCL at the time, was that a positive or a negative thing? Was she speaking to them, trying to convince them, move over away from the Communist Party? Or was she speaking at the YCL just as a speaker? She was a speaker. She was the keynote speaker. It showed you, obviously, that the government was depending on the left. Remember... In the early 30s, who was marching for unemployment insurance? Well, it was the Communist Party. So they were a force. So she was speaking to the most liberal left-wing force in society at the time. So she was there to agree with them in their attempt to make a better world, even though they were both her and the YCL were going about it in a different way. She was trying to show that she was proud of the young people. Remember also, the party position, after 37, we had a new line. It wasn't the line of the 20s. The line was now to build a popular front, which means we started to take parts of American history and make it as our own, adapt it, to try to make it look like the early founding fathers, like Jefferson, like Lincoln, like George Washington, 
were actually more progressive at that time than we were putting a light on the progressive side of our forefathers, not the reactionary side, trying to show that we're Americans and we're patriots. And this came from the Seventh World Congress. Stalin had told everybody, it is your job now to be the best patriots of your country. And half of the countries in Europe at this time were overrun by the Nazis. So that's why the communists were in the leadership of the resistance movement. So the best resistance fighters in France and in Italy were the communists. Let's go on with the reading. People's Front was the application of the historic United Front policy to the conditions of the struggle against fascism and war. The communists have long advocated and carried out the principle of the United Front. In a communist manifesto written over a century ago, Marx stated that the communists fight for immediate demands in alliance with groups, classes, and parties which do not accept the long-range goal of socialism. Dimitrov's statement on the Workers' and Farmers' Party, which the American communists have long advocated as the form of the People's Front in the United States, fitted right with the traditions and conditions of the American class struggle. For a long time, even as far back as President Jackson's era, as we have noted in previous chapters, there has always existed a strong tendency for the workers and farmers to join forces together in united front political struggle against the common enemy, the capitalists. This trend was evidenced with a special sharpness during the important political fights of the Greenbackers, the Populists, and the La Follettes. Indeed, the characteristic United Front alliance of workers and small farmers has more of a background of political history in the United States than it has in industrial Europe, where social democracy, ignoring the political potentialities of the peasantry, traditionally concerned itself almost exclusively with the fight of the proletariat and the middle class. During the general period under consideration, 1933 to 1938, the Communist Party greatly improved the character of its united front work. It broke more and more with the sectarian leftism which it had manifested to some extent in the depth of the Great Crisis. The party has gone through various stages, from ultra-left sectarian, all the way across to social democracy. The whole world movement, if you study what happened in Russia, the split in the Russian Social Democratic Party between Matov and those of the Social Democratic nature and Lenin of the Bolshevik nature, you'll see there's always been this. Same thing happened in the United States and China. Everybody that may not know, but in China, there was a division in the beginning of the revolution between two or three different forces. One group wanted to concentrate on the workers in the cities. Another group wanted to concentrate on the peasants or the farmers in the countryside. So there was a struggle going on. And one side wins and the other side doesn't. It's that simple. So that's what we had in this country, the same kind of situation. In the 1920s, we went through a period of sectarian leftism, as William Z. Forster states. We did not get involved in the AFL at the time, American Federation of Labor. We started our own trade unions. That's what we did. And we call ourselves the Trade Union Unity League, T-U-U-L, and later became the Trade Union Educational 
League. And they were our forces within the labor movement, the organized labor movement in Europe and in the world. We did not have one unified trade union movement. Ours was around something called the Red International Trade Union Movement. And so that's what we did between 1919 and 1929. In 29, there was the stock market crash, and capitalism went belly up at the time. And so therefore, with the belly up of capitalism, fascism rose in 1922 in Italy, and in 1933 in Germany. So the line of the party had to change because the reality was different. And that happened in the period we're talking about, the Seventh Congress of the Comintern. You can continue, Comrade. This was shown by its effective work among the trade unions in the struggles of the unemployed, the Negro people, the youth, and in many other fields. The party was playing a very important part in the ever-increasing fight against fascism and war. The growth and activities of the CIO, the unemployed councils, the National Negro Congress, the American Youth Congress, the women's movement, the upsurge of the intellectuals, and the broad panacea organizations during these years were not isolated phenomena. Here I want to talk on what he means by the, quote, panacea organizations. What Comrade Angelo was talking about before with Huey Long, he was one of those panacea movements. But the real meaning behind them is that they're usually like cure-all. They focus on one issue within capitalism and think that by fixing it, it'll fix all the other issues, as if they all stem from that one issue. There was other movements that focused on fixing labor rights. It's very one-sided and superficial, and they would get a lot of support and a lot of people involved in it ultimately to fizzle out because it was a very terminal organization. Those movements never really went anywhere. But what they did is they served as a sort of political development for the people involved. And over time, the movements started to become more and more developed in their outlook. Going back to the reading, they sprang from the same basic cause, the ravages of the great economic crisis. They had many direct ties and much spirit of solidarity with each other. They headed toward the same goal, the defeat of threatening reaction, and they tended naturally to coalesce in a general movement of struggle. The united front policies of the Communist Party greatly aided this unification. In the period of imperialism and the struggle against fascism and war, the historic American practice of the toiling democratic masses to fight side by side moved toward the creation of a people's front. To open up to the questions. When Foster is talking about a people's front, if he's talking about a popular front or a united front? So when Foster is talking about a people's front, that is the popular front. It's a broad mass movement, so it includes not only workers, but other parts of society in it. The United Front is mainly built upon the workers. What circumstances call for a popular front versus a United Front? So the United Front is what the Communist Party does basically in every other situation because it's fighting for the workers' immediate demands. So we're uniting with the workers 
in their struggle for better pay, better working conditions. But in this context of fascism and the victory of fascism in countries abroad, the popular front is necessary in order to defend society largely from succumbing to fascism itself. So it requires the Communist Party being involved in not just the worker struggle, but in other movements as well to help them better defend themselves against the decay of all the other ideology that creeps in with the growth of fascism during a crisis. Go to Russia in 1905, 1917. If you know your history of that period, there were other political parties. Some of them joined with the Bolshevik Party, and some didn't. And some joined in the beginning, and then they left the Bolsheviks. But that's a united front. People who were members of the Socialist Revolutionaries, they called them the SRs, and the left wing of other parties joined together to carry out a revolution. That was a united front. Remember, the Bolsheviks were involved at the time, not in the leadership, but in the movement against the Tsar in the first revolution of March 1917, where Kerensky was installed, who was a social democrat. And the main reason why the Bolsheviks turned against Kerensky is that Kerensky refused to take Russia out of World War I, which was an imperialist war. And that was the reason the Russian peasants wanted peace. They wanted land and bread. They weren't interested in participating in that war. So that's why the Bolsheviks used it. They actually used the continuation of the war to build a base among the population. But the war that happened when the Soviet Union was attacked and the whole country joined together, the party, the Orthodox Church, the trade unions, they joined together for the war effort against fascism coming from Germany, that can be viewed as a popular front. To this day, everybody in Russia calls it the Great Patriotic War. And yet, in reality, they all took a pledge to Comrade Stalin when they went to the front. And when they came back with the defeated banners of the German Nazi movement, they threw it on the floor and they said, for Comrade Stalin, they all said that, for Comrade Stalin, for Comrade Stalin. So one section of the population was doing it for socialism. The other one was doing it for the country. That would be considered a popular front. What different political ideologies were included with this particular people's front? So there was a bunch of different ideologies, but mainly what we could characterize them all as is progressive. So it wasn't just communists, but it was also liberals. It's what Comrade Angelos referred to as fellow travelers as well. It was all people who had a vested interest to oppose the rise of fascism. And there were people not necessarily in the party. You've heard us say many times, not everybody should be in the party. They're not capable. But people can work with the party if they agree with certain positions of the party. And that's what a fellow traveler is. So they were all opposed to fascism. But the Bolsheviks were the ones who opposed the fascism because of Marxist ideology. The other ones were, had their own reasons for a opposition to fascism. So they joined together. The United Front is just working class parties. 
let's try to put it to today. Let's say PL and Workers World and the CP and the PCUSA who claim all to come from a working class background, they can join together in a coalition. That would be a united front. But once elements of the capitalists come in, elements of the Democratic Party or the Republican Party or the small shopholders, the people from the middle class, they're also opposed to fascism. Once they join together, that's a popular front or a people's front. You're talking about how originally the party was kind of on its own, forming its own trade union groups, kind of not working with other groups. But then after the stock market crash, it kind of started building these coalitions that the author's talking about. The CIO was working with the AFL trade unions, or were they kind of working with both? The CIO was not working with the AFL. They were two separate entities in the trade union movement. One was the official trade union movement, the AFL, started in the 1800s, comes out of an idea of guilds, that a person would do a job, let's say electrical work, and then they would have their son come in as an apprentice and join the union. They were the guild unions or the craft unions. The CIO came in with a whole different idea, that people that work in a factory, whether they work in this area or whether they work in that area, they all were members of the same factory area. And that's how they joined the CIO. And it was Congress of Industrial, there's the key word with the CIO, industrial organizations. So the CIO was industrial. The AFL came out of the craft unions for over 100 years before that. The question is, who was composed of CIO? They were communists. They were people who believed in socialism, but not communists. They were American radicals. They were those that came from the IWW background industrial workers of the world. They weren't interested in ideology. They were interested in their class, that their class should have organized in a union. So there was all different forces. Comrade called it correctly, fellow travelers. We would call them fellow travelers. They use the term fellow travelers because they're walking along the same road as we are, as communists are. But at the end of the day, they're walking along the same road for different reasons. Others, like us, do it for ideological reasons, because we're committed to Lenin and Marx. Others who are fellow travelers feel what we're doing now is the correct thing to do, but they're not died in the will, ideological, committed to our cause. Comrade Foster, his earlier organizing, he was part of the several radical unions that you can consider syndicalists. So he came from a very left sectarian background when it came to union organizing, and they were what was called dual unions. But very quickly he became disenchanted with it because of its very isolationist results. So I wouldn't say after 29 the behavior of the Communist Party changed. I think it was a little bit before then towards the unions. And Foster was actively involved in trying to organize the factories which other unions at the time were against. But then there was also the issue of 
the unions, especially the radical unions, putting their nose up at the, the trustified industries. They didn't want to work with them. And so Foster advocated that they work within the trustified unions and fight against the reactionary leadership. And so that was the main policy that the party started to follow after Foster started to get involved with the Communist Party. So they started to do away with the dual unionism, which the IWW was and is. So they started to work within the reactionary trade unions and started to gain a better foothold among the workers. The AFL formed in 1886, and that was not even a decade after the end of Reconstruction of the Civil War. And so, correct me if I'm wrong, Angelo, but the AFL was incredibly, incredibly racist and incredibly anti-women as well, incredibly misogynistic and sexist. So the CIO was not only in terms of what you said about more so worker and, you know, a left progressive power, but also a counter to that social construct of racism and white supremacy. Am I off base? You're right on base, but add to the fact that the AFL itself was a craft union. That means they had an elitist attitude. Only some people are good enough to belong to our union. That's their attitude. So I mentioned with craft unions, the father would teach the son the ins and the outs, and then the son would automatically get into the union. So now we separated the elite people that were skilled in certain things from a general person who works for a living, picking up crates. That person has a right to the same union as the one who makes the cabinets. That kind of idea. Earlier, he said something about the degeneracy or something among the younger members of the party. He's just wondering what he meant by that. What's basically happening is that society around them is breaking down due to the rise of fascism. And so the youth goes through a period of degeneracy morally and spiritually. And so they drift more towards the reaction. But also they become disenchanted with society itself. And so you lose a lot of political potential and ambition during the crisis. I want to also add to that. There was an ethical, moral undercurrent going on in the left. Remember this. Basically, the Communist Party and Marxism was replacing the old religion of Christianity and Judaism. That's what was happening among the young people. So therefore, they had a level of code of conduct that you just don't do certain things and other things you do. Those who were not involved in the left, specifically the party, more specifically the party, who joined socialist movements, who joined individual anarchist movements, were practicing something that was widespread at the time. My mom told me about it when I was younger. She lived through that. It was called free love. I don't know if anybody ever heard of it. And that was an attempt to castigate the family as they knew it. And to say that we can sleep with whoever we want, have children out of wedlock. This was what was going on among certain sections of the young people. And it was like nihilism against everything they had been brought up as, which was 
led by the religious institutions, that you don't have any relations outside of marriage. Remember the Ten Commandments? One of them is, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Another one said, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods, which meant, my wife meant, if you're in a marriage, you stay in that marriage. This whole ethical, it became a religion. And so the party, young people, were brought up the most ethical. They looked at that as degeneration of bourgeois society. Whether they were right or wrong, that was the way they looked at it. So they became so ethically pure. And I find that in our party, by the way, among young people who come in. In that time that we're talking about, I don't know if you know this, but the YCL in this country in the 20s, the young people, they did not dress like other young people. They followed the model in the Soviet Union. So the women who were 18 years old had long dresses, peasant dresses to the ground, along with kerchiefs on when young women were not doing kerchief things. It was an older generation of women. And the men were very proper in how they dressed. This all came from emulating what they saw in the Soviet Union in the 20s and the 30s. I hope that answers some questions, because that has a lot of bearing on the word degenerate. However, the incipient People's Front Movement of those years, a blood brother to the Great People's Front Movements of Europe, never reached the stage of becoming a full-fledged mass, quote, workers and farmers party, unquote, as described by Dimitrov. This was partly because of Roosevelt's skillful maneuvering to keep the workers tied to the Democratic Party, and partly because of the timidity and treachery of the workers' own union leaders, who refused to break with the two-party system. Consequently, the movement never rose to a higher level than that of an uncoordinated popular coalition around Roosevelt, a loose democratic front. But it nevertheless proved powerful enough to halt, at least temporarily, the advance of fascism in the United States. Very important point. That was written in what year, Comrade? Foster wrote this in 52. Okay, that was written in 52. While Comrade Stalin was alive, remember that. Comrade Stalin died in 53. And then the attack against him happened in 56 from Khrushchev. But in 52, when this was written, Comrade Stalin was the head of the international communist movement. So Comrade Foster is basically saying that there's always was a danger from progressive people, even like Roosevelt, to keep us in one party of the bourgeoisie. Now we're in 2021. In another three weeks, we're going to be in 2021. That means how many years have passed? What was the mathematician on this phone call? From 52 to 2021. All these years, we more or less, by enabling a position to stick only to the Democratic Party, we never made any advances. No advances were made all these years. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what should have been the right policy? After fascism was destroyed in 45, what did the communists try to do throughout the world? Well, they tried to have fatherland fronts in all of Eastern Europe, 
And in this country, we tried a third party movement, the way Foster was talking about, a farmers and labor party. It was called the Progressive Party. And what I don't understand is, because the Progressive Party ran a candidate in 1947 against the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, and another party called the Dixiecrats, which was Southern white followers of the Democratic Party. So there was four tendencies in the election. The Democratic Party, Republican Party, the Dixiecrat Party, and the Progressive Party. Because of that, remember, we were going through what? Anti-communism started already in 1947. The so-called speech by Churchill that there's an iron curtain has descended upon Europe. Because remember, Truman was the new president now. He dropped the bomb in 45 because Roosevelt had passed away. And they put up Truman as the vice president, knowing fully well that Roosevelt was dying. And they didn't want Henry Wallace, who was the head of the Progressive Party, that worked with communists and socialists and independent radicals, they didn't want that. So they put Truman. When Roosevelt won, Truman came in, and Roosevelt died while he was in office when they had the new elections. Truman was the standard bearer. And so the Progressive Party only got about a million votes. To me, a million votes during that period of anti-communism was great. But they decided... The attack was too much, and they allowed the Progressive Party to die. It was allowed to die by the leadership. I believe strongly of that, because I'll go into another class in the future. While I was in the party, they allowed things to die, even under the leadership of Gasol, who was one of the better leaders. They allowed things to die. I work in the ethnic community. I'm not going to get into it now, but it's terrifying. So that's the point I'm making. That we tried it, we didn't win, and we should have continued it, in my opinion. We should have continued, not give up so easily. And with that, we're going to open it up now to ask questions. If fascism is something that's always kind of in the background of how the ruling class maintains power, what does the People's Front differentiate from just communist organizing in general? So Dimitrov says that in countries of bourgeois democracy, we want to bar the road to reaction and the offensive of capital in fascism and prevent the abrogation of bourgeois democratic liberties. Forestall fascism's terrorist vengeance upon the proletariat. The revolutionary section of the peasantry and the intellectuals save the young generation from physical and spiritual degeneracy. What fascism represents in this context is a degradation of basically all the national characteristics, all the progressive and democratic national characteristics of the nation. And so the United Front, which is normally for the Communist Party, a effort to unite with the workers for their immediate needs and demands, it's expanding it to include the intellectuals, the youth, women, all in an effort to prevent these other movements from succumbing to fascist reaction. It's communists and progressives fighting against reactionary leadership within these movements to generally prevent the country from going wholesale into fascist reaction. The old party, the CP, claims that they're jumping in bed with the Democratic Party and only in bed. They're very loyal to just one party, 
the Democratic Party, which is a party of big business, like the other party is. They both are. But their rationalization is they use Dimitrov. And I noticed this. I've had discussions with their apologists. And they use Dimitrov as an example. Well, here's the difference. If you read Dimitrov completely, which these people didn't, they only cherry-pick and what they want to prove that they're following the same line that the communists followed in 1935 and 37 and 40. The difference is this. Dimitro says very clearly, we work on an equal basis with the rank and file of the bourgeois parties. We do not accept the leadership. And this can all be verified if you go to Dimitrov. It has in there all the correct information. So he it says, Dimitro says, we are not here to follow the leadership of the bourgeois parties. We're here to work with their rank and file in a front against fascism. What the CP has done is they have taken the leadership of the Democratic Party, Biden, Clinton, whoever, Obama, and they say, we follow the leadership of the Democratic Party in the United Front. No, 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 comrades, it's not the same reality when we were in a united front with the Democratic Party in the 1930s, we were considered the third largest political force in the United States. And I keep stressing this over and over again. The communist movement was the third largest political force. That's not the case today. Today, we're not even part of the equation. Our party is small and growing. We're only about five or six years old. The other parties are much too small, including the old CP. They have become tailist, which means they follow the leadership of the Democratic Party, and they claim that they united front with them. That's not what Dimitrov said at all. I hope people understand the difference, that we are equal partners with the bourgeois leaders in fighting fascism. We're not following the bourgeois leadership of their party, and that's the difference. In this, we're talking about the People's Front with working with the progressives and everything else. How do we combat the lesser evilism that is pervasive in politics today in America where you go, well, we got to go and side with the Democrats because the Republicans are way too evil. How do you combat that? First of all, listen to this quote. The lesser evil is itself evil. Don't forget that quote. The lesser evil is itself evil. We have the three-legged stool. The three-legged stool is very simple. It's a little stool you put your foot on, but it has three legs instead of four. The first leg is we run our own candidates electorally. Our own candidates, Party of Communists, USA. The second leg is to work with other formations in the left to form an electoral front, a front, F-R-O-N-T, which means we can work with another political group just to run candidates, not to join with them or anything else, but to run a joint slate of candidates. That's another way of going about it. And the last one, the last leg of that stool, is under certain circumstances, we could endorse a candidate of one of the two major parties if, if their position is pro-peace, which means anti-imperialist, very clearly, pro-peace means anti-imperialist, and if they're pro-worker, 
and anti-racist, then that's a situation we can endorse such a candidate. But as the time is going on, comrades, it's getting harder and harder to endorse a candidate of the Republican or Democratic Party. They're both are going to the right. Ever since Clinton became president in 1992, he took over the Democratic Party. It was around Clinton that they pushed the whole Democratic Party to the right, to the right. I don't know if anybody knows this, but one of the candidates on the Democratic Party in the early 80s was a guy by the name of McGovern. I think it was George McGovern. Well, you do some history of George McGovern. George McGovern worked with Henry Wallace's Progressive Party in 1948 and 1952, the same party that the communists worked with. So you could see that a person could be running as a Democrat, but in reality, they're much more to the left than that. That has happened in the past. Ever since Clinton came in, every Democrat has been to the right of center. So we call them center-right. They're not center-left anymore. So it's harder and harder. That's the three-legged stool. But getting to the question of the lesser of two evils, let's look at history. Every time we've had a lesser of two evils, we wind up supporting the most right-wing person because the lesser of two evils fails. Let's go to Germany. They tried to stop Hitler in the elections, in the early elections, so they put a guy by the name of von Hindenburg, and they put him up. He was a centrist, supposedly. Well, when von Hindenburg got sick, everybody knows what he did. He gave the chancellorship, which was a title in Germany, the chancellorship to Adolf Hitler. This was the center person. We were strong enough in Germany so that we were able to put our own candidate as the Communist Party candidate, Baumann, Ernst Baumann. We were able to put him up. But in our situation here, we're not at that point anymore. Ever since the 1950s, our ranks have been decimated. We have to start all over again, comrades, whether we realize it or not. There's no easy way out. We got to start all over again. And we started with Comrade Halali, and we ran him. And he was the first time since 1984 we had a communist running in this country. We don't use the elections, comrades, to win. We use the elections to get our platform out. When Halali ran, people throughout the country contacted the party because of his candidacy. They were able to know of what he was doing, which they couldn't have found out if he wasn't running. So the lesser two evils in history shows you eventually we get the right wing. Germany was a perfect example, and in every other country, including this country. Do you think Biden is going to do anything for us? Well, we hope he is, but hope is not what a communist does. Communist doesn't rely on hope. Communist relies on doing, and hoping does nothing. Praying and hoping, as good as it is for many people, it's not going to change reality. So Biden is going to do what he's going to do. He's going to fail. And come that 2024, guess what the people are going to look again to? The right. And the only way to build up against the right is to build the left up. A comrade earlier mentioned Huey Long and that movement of appealing to the farmers and the working people, particularly in Louisiana, et cetera. 
We have to remember that just 15 years before he was assassinated, Eugene V. Debs had run a fairly successful campaign for the Socialist Party of America. It was the culmination of a long period of socialist sentiments in Texas, Oklahoma, and western Louisiana. There was a lot. In fact, Eugene B. Debs' largest voting bloc came out of those areas, not from the cities. And if you want to read about this particular movement in what was called the American Southwest at that point, it's called Grassroots Socialism by James Green. It's an excellent book. It was written in the 70s, and it gives you kind of an overview. But the second part of this is how someone like Long followed that fascist model of picking up those sentiments and putting race and other, of course, nefarious ideas into that mix as well and leading that charge, sort of like Hitler did with putting in socialist in national socialist. In the first half of the text, it mentions the fact that the fascism in the United States would brand itself as being opposed to fascism. And then later on, it talks about social democracy in Europe. So my main question or thought about this is, how would you say that this relates to social fascism? Social fascism is a thesis that was prevalent in the 20s and early 30s. That whole ideology was no longer applicable for the communist movement after 1935 or 36. Why? Because the reality changed. That time, we now saw fascism had taken foothold in Italy and in Germany. And it was on the march through military means by German and Italian forces, military forces. So we had a rupture in the body. Blood was coming out. We had to do something differently. Once that war ended, in my opinion, we actually should have gone back to what we had before. So after 1945, we should have gone back, but that's another whole class. What was in Stalin's mind in 1943 when he dissolved the Comintern? I urge people to read the book about Yalta, which was written by, I believe it was William C. Forster or Earl Browder. One of them wrote a book about Yalta. That changed the whole way communists operated. Our view, and where do you hear this if you're not sure of it, the view that was coming out of the world communist movement, the leadership, was that American capitalism had changed. That was the first mistake. Could we ever really believe, how could someone be naive to think that American capitalism will ever change for the better? If it did, it wouldn't be capitalism. It would be putting people first and profit second. But that's what happened because it goes right in hand with this. What happened? Why didn't we go back to the theory of social fascism, which to me is a correct theory? It basically says if you scratch a liberal, you'll find a conservative. That's basically in a modern day view. And I believe it's really true. Every liberal, if you scratch them, they're all anti-communist, the liberals today. What happened in 43, and how did it affect the world communist movement? 
things like anarchism and the ultra-left, that is the far left wing of reactionary science, what I would like to say. And social democracy is sort of like a center-left wing of reactionary science. I wanted to say that I really agree with what Angelo said about the difference between a united front with a rake and file versus promoting and following the leadership of the Democratic Party. And I believe on one end, we could even bring in rank and file members from the other party, as where the other end just shows kind of a lack of leadership and shows weakness and no real ideology. Would you say the events that occurred during this time of Roosevelt parallels to what's happening in the states today? Look at the people that Biden's putting into his cabinet. Ninety percent of them have come from Obama's administration. So we do know, we do know what's going to happen foreign policy. He's going to go back to business as usual. Before Trump came in, Trump talked about making people in NATO pay their own way, but he never disagreed with what NATO was doing. He agreed with what NATO was doing, Trump did, what they did in the Ukraine. Trump did not disagree with that. Trump was the one who sent the missiles into Syria. I think it was the second year of his administration. He actually killed Syrian civilians because he was doing the biting of Israel. So let's not kid ourselves. The only difference between Trump and Biden is domestically. Trump is going to try to build a fascist cult around himself like he did for the last four years. No other president in our history, I'm 73, after the elections, not one president, Eisenhower, Carter, not one of them ever had rallies around the country in different states for their own benefit. The rallies ended when the election ended. Comrades, this president that we're leaving now had rallies like Hitler and Mussolini did every month throughout the year in a different location. That is not our history. That is something abnormal for this kind of dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. Everything is under the covers. This guy was deliberately exposing the dictatorship but he said it wasn't coming from the bourgeoisie. Like Louis Long, he tried to say it's coming from other forces, but not the capitalist class. He never used that term. Our job for the next four years is going to be harder on a different level. We're going to have more struggles against American imperialism. That's every part of the world. Thank you for allowing me to give you my perspectives coming from Eritrea, a successful national liberation movement in Africa. And probably I'm not as sophisticated as most of you sound in terms of the ideology of Marxism-Leninism. But what I'm critical of the American socialist and communist movement is that the left in this country has a long history in decades, almost a century, of comparing Democrats with a Republican and then ending up voting for a Democrat as a better of the two evils. This is anti-Leninist and anti-Marxist because both revolutionaries in history have indicated that the comparative difference, emotional difference between the two party system 
including monarchies in the time of international imperialism, is totally useless from a standpoint of Marxism and socialism and communism. So how do you explain this, that the North American socialist or communist movement has always been talking for decades about the exploitation by imperialism, foreign policy by imperialism, but we have not come up with any alternative program for the realization of the socialist movement in North America. And even there are shades of differences between North American social democracy and European social democracy. So how are we going to explain this phenomenon in history? Because we are in the least position in terms of uh, political emancipation of the American working class. Comrade is thoroughly correct when he says social democracy in Europe is actually ahead of social democracy in this country. We never had a social democratic party, comrades. England had the Labour Party. Germany had the Social Democratic Party. We never had that in this country. We couldn't even get to that spot yet. We have a long road ahead of us, a long, long road. And American exceptionalism and individualism is very strong in this country, comrade. It's not that strong in Europe. They have a history of collective work in the trade union movement. We don't have that here. Also, we had something that was very close to fascism in this country, which most people don't remember. It was called the 1950s, the McCarthy period. Many, many people in the trade union movement lost their jobs. The leadership of the trade union movement, which was led by communists, were thrown out, thrown out by the government. They worked with anti-communist forces inside the trade union movement, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO that the communists built, and the anti-communists worked with government agents to get rid of them. So we didn't have that in Europe. We never had that in Europe. In France, communists were allowed to be in leadership, and in Italy, of the trade union movement. And in Spain, they were allowed. But we didn't have that here. Our road here is much more difficult. It's going to be longer. But the class-conscious understanding, comrade, we don't have that here. Americans don't understand what it is to be a worker. Class consciousness. They don't understand the idea that the boss has nothing in common with the worker. So we have a lot of work to do here. I was not talking about class consciousness, but I was talking about the role of the two-party system. Why do socialists and communists end up voting for Democrats? I don't see any difference qualitative difference between the Trump administration and Joe Biden. Joe Biden has more potential to create more travel throughout the globe, in South China Sea, in the Baltic States, in Belarus. Yeah, we, comrade, uh, we agreed with you. The difference was only internal. You don't understand or you don't see that Trump represented a threat to the domestic operations of our Constitution whereas Biden does not. That's the only difference. That's it, period, beginning and end. Otherwise, they're the yes. same. About how the progressive movement in the United States was allowed to die, I think all of us probably on this call have seen supposed leftist groups calling for support for the Democratic Party today. I'm not going to name them by names, but I think we all know who I'm talking about. 
were there parallels back then with other groups in the fronts that were calling for support of different candidates in the Democratic Party, or is that the new phenomenon? The role of the CP today is the exact role that the Socialist Party took during that period. I suggest you get a booklet by William Z. Forster called The Crisis in the Socialist Party. You read that book, you would be shocked. Take the word Socialist Party out and put the word Communist Party, and you'll see the exact script and road that the CP has taken. The last time they ran candidates was 1984. So since 1984, where they started to support continuously Democrats. From 1984 to 2020, they supported only Democrats. That is sad. They connected themselves strictly to the Democratic Party. And this progressive party, which ran in 47 and in 52, that's where the communists were acting. They were not acting in the Democratic Party during the Stalin period. But even after the Stalin period, as I said, we ran candidates as communists. So the progressive movement in the U.S. has not always had the same characteristics or goals, but it has served more or less the same function. In Lenin's analysis of the significance of the 1912 presidential elections, he noted how the bipartisan system in the U.S. has pretty much prevented the rise of an independent labor movement, given that the issue of the lesser of two evils, if you don't support the Democratic candidate, well, then here comes this openly reactionary person. And so the issue with the American politics at the time that Lenin was trying to expose is that the progressives and the Democratic Party are really trying to fool the people into voting for them. So I would say that it's always been an issue when it comes to progressives and the Democrats. At that time, the CIA was propagating a lot of the new left with the Congress for Cultural Freedom and the whole destroy everything and that alienated a lot of people. About the Progressive Party, numerous examples of attempts to make party in a specific area that has the ability to become a popular front-type party. In the South here, we had the Populist Party in the late 1890s, which in North Carolina managed to get a coalition between African Americans and poor white farmers who never benefited from segregation. They got them to elect the government for a couple of years until they literally burned down our cities, but, you know, it's a long story. And then even in, like, the 40s and the 30s, there were still literal farmer labor parties active in several states that had a chance of forming something. But again, usually it always comes back to we got to throw ourselves behind the Democrat Party in order to fend off our true enemies. The idea of degeneration of capitalist society, this is something that I think about personally. And I was wondering about our stance on these really out there alternative lifestyles like that whole idea of free love. I gave you the reaction of the party at that time. Remember their model was fresh in everybody's mind. The Soviet Union was born in 1922. 
The revolution happened in 1917. There was a civil war. And in 1922, the civil war was over. So the Soviet Union was established officially in 1922. And that's the period of time I'm talking about of the communist movement in this country. But this is a different reality now. As Mark said, is the reality different? So it's a different reality. I don't see us having anything on that. We have really neglected it for whatever reason. That's the honest answer. Angela had mentioned before that even small business owners, the petty bourgeoisie, can side with anti-fascist forces. But I was under the impression, in fact, we talked about earlier that those same people are the people to whom fascists appeal the most, the middle class, which is more or less that. So which part of the capitalist class does fascism represent? Comrades, look at the last few elections. X number of monopoly corporations gave money to Hillary Clinton. Other monopoly corporations gave money to Trump. So you're asking which ones? Off the top of people's heads, that's not easy to say. We could only look at the facts and to see what they did. Why? They must have had reasons for what they did, obviously. People in the pharmaceutical area had something to gain from one person over the other. Same thing with munitions industries. But it's obvious somebody wrote a thing that the working class lost, no matter who won, the working class lost. And they're always going to lose unless they have their own ideological political party. We haven't been able to do that, mainly because, comrades, in the left, what is very strong in this country? The anarchist movement is ridiculously strong. Most people that come into the left, I bet you on this phone call, some of them had beginnings in the anarchist movement because they rebel against society at an early age. They see the horrors, and they look to those who are saying this whole society is kaput. In other words, throw out the baby with the bathwater. And their analysis is Emma Goldman, the famous leader of the anarchist movement, said, if I can't dance to your revolution, I don't want no part of it. That's the individualism of the anarchist movement, that they are the center of the universe, that their crap doesn't stink, and that everybody else can be criticized except them. That's my interpretation of them. And they're not able, as a group, to organize the lint. Listen to my analogy. They're so unept to do anything, they can't organize the lint in their navel. Can you picture that? That's how <laughs> far away from reality these people are. So that's why I think we've been weak electorally, because we're still infected, and considered an infection, with anarchism and individualism. The petty bourgeoisie were siding with the anti-fascists and you were wondering why. Well, there's not really one easy answer to it. For one reason or another, some of them do end up being anti-fascist. But the class character of fascism is decidedly finance capital. That's who it's mainly supposed to protect. It's supposed to protect the ruling class, the bourgeoisie itself, from the rise of socialism. Georgi Dimitrov talked about this in the United Front, and he talked about some people were saying that fascism was the ideology of the petty bourgeoisie, but in fact it's not. They are drawn to it because in their decay, in the growth of capitalism and during a crisis, 
they're thrown into a tailspin. They're being absorbed and eaten by the bigger capitalists, so they move towards the reaction. But it's not the ideology of the petty bourgeoisie. It's the ideology of finance capital trying to gather its forces to actually crush the revolution. If you check opensecrets.org, it will list all of the corporations that give money to the Republicans and the Democrats. And what you'll notice is every single corporation gives to both parties. They do not care who wins. They just want them in the pocket. I think another comrade mentioned about the CIA. And yes, you can read our U.S. Congressional Register. And you can see where J. Edgar Hoover has put into our congressional record what's going on with the Communist Party. It is revelationary that we have in our own records what they think of the Communist Party. And you can go to most any year and find something. The one I like is Edgar Hoover in 1966 and his comments on just what was going on. He even included Gus Hall. He knew everything that was going on in 1966 regarding the party. And we have to be aware of that and assume that. Everybody in the phone call should know, when Roosevelt was maneuvering, there was a large Communist Party. There was also a smaller, active Socialist Party. We don't have either of those today. The 1950s deliberately destroyed the Communist alternative in this country. That's what they were there for, to do. The FBI and the House Un-American Activities Committee and Jay Hoover. Yeah, exactly. That's all destroyed. We're starting from scratch. And some people feel they don't have the time to start from scratch. I've met these people. Well, it's okay. You may not have the time to start from scratch, but there are other people who do have the time and want to start from scratch to build a workers' party and one that's legitimate, that is not off the walls. And we need that. So Roosevelt had that. The reason when Roosevelt was running, we had over 100,000 people in New York City with marches for unemployment insurance. We had them, the unemployed council. That was a transmission belt at the time. We don't have that now. Most of the people on this phone call are part of an effort to rebuild the communist movement in this country under the PCUSA banner. And a lot of them are doing great work. Others are new coming in. They have a model to follow. They should get involved. The revolution may not happen in our lifetime. It definitely won't happen in mine at 73. And it may not happen in the next 10, 15, 30 years. But it's eventually going to happen because the capitalism cannot sustain itself. And all these people will try to help capitalism. People on the left, like the CPUSA, we're trying to bring across an idea of capitalism with a human face. There's no such thing, comrades. Smack them in the face, say, smell the coffee, and let's get on with the revolution. Thank you for listening to this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Support us at NewOutlookPublishers.net, join us on Discord, follow us on Twitter, and visit PeopleSchool.org to sign up for free classes.